Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just a bit of good news. Edward Alamany, the person who killed Amy Lord in 2013, his conviction has just been upheld by the Massachusetts Judicial Supreme Court. One of the reasons that the case was up for appeal, the defense, Edward Alamany's side, said that the prosecutor humanized Amy Lord too much. And the SJC, the Judicial Supreme Court, stated that at times the prosecutor may have went a little overboard, but they do have a right to humanize the defendant and the case will not be overturned on appeal. He will not be granted a new trial. And the SJC went on to say there's so much other evidence that that just simply wouldn't have mattered. There's forensics. There's identifications. This guy is guilty as the day is long, and he is going to serve his life sentence without parole. So that's good news, right? And if you remember from back in 2013, this was just a horror show. Edward Alamany had went on a 24-hour crime spree against women. He ran into people coming out of their homes, trying to rape them, pull them away. And finally, he ends up with Amy Lord, who is coming out of her apartment. And he puts her in her car and forces her to drive to five ATMs around the city of Boston. And if you remember, the whole city was just holding their breath saying, you know, Amy, run. Everybody just wanted Amy to run out of there, but I think she was just too frightened. And she thought maybe she could ride it out. That wasn't to be. And Edward Alamany stabbed Amy more than 35 times in High Park, Massachusetts. And guilty as sin. This was a death penalty case. He not only murdered Amy Lord, but he terrorized those two other women. So there it is. Edward Alamany, going to die in prison. Also, guys, we've gotten a pretty good response to our episode on Michael McDermott and Edgewater Technologies. But I just wanted to highlight, I did make a mistake in that case. At times, I called it Wakefield Technologies, and the business name is Edgewater Technologies. I go back and forth during the episode making that error. Sorry about that. Not a big deal, but I guess we all need forgiveness at times. All right, guys, we're on to a case. I felt like I needed to give you guys a break from all the blood and guts we've been wading through these past few weeks. So here's a score. There is some blood and guts involved in this one as well, but it's Boston. What can I tell you? All right, so it's the great Plymouth mail truck robbery, something I had never heard of, and I had asked for help. I don't know, 10 episodes ago, and I had gotten some from some of my researchers and some of the people who write in. But this is an extremely interesting case, and it's still unsolved today. 
1962, August 14th, 1962. Before I get into the details of the case, I just want to tell you the amount of money involved in this is staggering. You know, when you read the reports, it was only $1.5 million in cash taken. But that indicates the 1962 value of the dollar today. That same score, $1.5 million is worth over $13 million in cash. So an astronomical amount of money in the 1960s. And this had all the hallmarks of a blockbuster Hollywood movie. And I guess, let me just tell you the story. I just really never knew about it. And Fitz, one of my researchers, sent me some stuff on it. And Nate had as well. So it seems like I'm the only one in the Commonwealth who doesn't know about this case. But if you're in the same boat with me, we'll go through it together. All right, here's the story of the Great Plymouth Mail Truck Robbery of 1962. So it's August 14th, 1962. And two postal employees, Patrick Sheena and Bill Barrett. Bill Barrett was the guard in this. And I believe this was just a run-of-the-mill mail truck, much like you see today. But these guys were taking a ton of money from Cape Cod, from all the post offices on Cape Cod. The money they take in, you know, it's going to the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston. They also have receipts for registered mail. And a couple other things, but obviously the cash was the big draw. And this was relatively new for the U.S. Postal Service. They had used, you know, an armored car before. And about three weeks prior to the robbery, they switched to this one driver and one guard, a company, all that cash from Cape Cod all the way up to Boston. And that's what these two guys were doing Shenna and Barrett, they were driving up to the Federal Reserve. It was 8 p.m. It had been a lovely day, summer day on Cape Cod, and they were heading into the city. They were driving on Route 3 north from Cape Cod, like I said, towards Boston. And they came upon the, I believe it's the Clark Road exit in that area anyway. They had seen a vehicle pass them about 80 miles an hour just before this, but they don't think much of it. You know, it's route three, people go fast. So regardless, they go a little bit further and they see an obstruction in the road. They get a little closer, it's the police. They're cordoning off the highway and they direct them to the side of the road. Naturally, they do that. But as soon as they pull to the side of the road, two other cars come out from, I don't know if it was the highway or was an adjacent road. But two other cars pull up, and just before those cars pull up, the policemen have submachine guns, and they order them to do whatever they really want. So these two guys must just lose it, and they comply. There's believed to be four people involved at the robbery itself. I'll tell you a little bit more about the robbery, what happened just afterwards. There were more people involved on that end. But these guys, they just tell the guys to shut up, be quiet, and everything's going to be all right. But they do have machine guns. There's no sense in trying to fight back. So the driver and the guard were tied up with electrical cords, and pretty quickly they just moved out of there. There were detour signs, legitimate highway detour signs, 
directing them that there was an obstruction and all that. So it kind of lent credence to the idea that there may be an accident or road work up ahead. All those items were recovered as evidence. But the guards were transported. They made several stops before being freed. And the guards believed this was to drop off the money. It was like two, three, four stops along the way. And it was relatively close by, they said, where they dropped the money. Or at least that's what they think. I think these guys were blindfolded as well. But a short time later, the driver and the guard, Shana and Barrett, were dropped off at Route 128 in Randolph, which is just outside of Boston, probably 10, 15 minutes outside of Boston. They were unharmed, unhurt, and a little shaken up because of the robbery, but no real worse for the wear. But now the trucks were gone. The mail truck was gone. And it's just the guards that remain. And there was a lot of speculation. There could have been as much as $40 million. This hit the newspapers like it was the Brinks job, because it really was. And there was intense media speculation on who could actually pull this off. Who would have had that inside information? Who would have you know, some machine guns, right? So all eyes turned to organized crime in Boston. And that's how this whole thing started to ramp up. But something I wanted to tell you about, as this robbery was going down, the rest of Route 3 was shut down. And it was shut down, at least partially, by a beautiful woman who, let me just say, was pretty blessed in the bosom area, I guess. And Everybody who had stopped had believed that there was an accident up ahead because now these guys were using the road close signs to do the same thing. And that was to give the robbers actual time to make the robbery and the getaway. But it did happen pretty quickly. And I think the woman and there was at least one other man with her at the time. Then they removed the signs and let traffic flow is what I believe. By that time, the mail truck and the fake cops were gone. So there was four people. The guards reported four people, two people dressed as police officers and two other people in those two getaway cars, I guess. So it seems to be at least a group of six, but it may have been more. This whole thing seems to have taken just minutes to complete. The cops do the fake pullover. They comply. They're tied up and then driven away. So I don't even know how long those others had to block the road. And I said they used the signs as well. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if they just used this woman to be like, oh, my car's broken down, nobody can pass, something like that. I don't know much about the group before or after, just after the robbery that stopped traffic so the robbers wouldn't be disturbed. So if you're immediately thinking, how stupid is it of the Postal Service they used to use an armored car to transport this level of money. I don't know why they discontinued that money, a money saver, right? That's all you can figure. And this change occurred about three weeks prior. So if your mind's going immediately to inside job, I think the cops' minds were going that way too. It's just a strange thing, right? Three weeks in, they're bringing a million dollars, 1.5 million at a time from Cape Cod to Boston with one guard. You know what I mean? 
So it hits the papers with a splash, kind of like the Brinks job, actually. And everybody was speculating who was involved. The postal inspectors, I guess they're the postal police, get involved pretty heavily along with the FBI. But I want to remind everybody the problems the Boston FBI had at that time. They were basically in the pocket of organized crime. And so if the FBI's compromised on it and they're bringing in the postal police, I don't think the local gangsters are very frightened of that. In fact, I heard one local gangster refer to the postal inspectors as a stamp police. And they didn't know the Boston crime scene. The FBI did because they were involved in it. You know what I mean? And H. Paul Rico was there. He was present. He was a lead agent in the Boston office of the FBI. And H. Paul Rico actually trained John Conley. And Rico may be the most corrupt FBI agent in history. So if the mob told H. Paul Rico not to look too hard at certain elements of organized crime and it would come out that some of these guys that were suspects were down with the Patriarca clan in Rhode Island. I don't know how much help the Boston FBI was going to be on this case. And again, the postal police don't know the players, and they don't know how tough investigating organized crime in Boston could be. So they got nowhere, absolutely nowhere. The FBI and the postal police they opened their wallets. The federal government opened their wallets on this. So there was around-the-clock surveillance on all the local players, all the known robbers and all this. And then when that didn't work, they became intrusive. They let them know they were being followed and put pressure on them. Again, they don't know how this game in Boston works. I don't think you're going to put pressure on a guy in Winter Hill. You're just not going to do it. And the North End, the same thing. You're not going to get anywhere with these guys. I don't want to call them professionals like I admire them, but they have total disdain for the police, all of them. And you may get a rat here and there, but for the most part, all those people they put under surveillance didn't have anything to do with this robbery. I think the federal government was largely embarrassed at how easy this heist was and the fact that Anybody with half a brain should have seen this coming from a mile away. I'm actually surprised it took three weeks to take one of these cars off the road with $1.5 million. And I keep saying $1.5 million, right? But you need to think in today's value, that's over $13 million, guys. Imagine that. So goddamn easy the score was. And I'll tell you about the aftermath. The search for these robbers goes on for five years. For some reason, there's a statute of limitations on this robbery is five years. We usually think in terms of seven years, statute of limitations, for whatever reason, this statute of limitations was only five. So they quickly find this money-gobbling surveillance that they instituted on every um, robber or organized crime associated in the Commonwealth, they found that wasn't working very well. And geez, that's a surprise, right? So they offered a reward, and it was a huge reward. It was $150,000, 10% of the loot that was taken in the robbery. 
1962 has the equivalent purchasing power of about $1.3 million. So they were putting some pressure on people. That's a big reward. And you could remain anonymous from what I gather. And also there was another reward for $50,000 that was held by the post office separately. So there was a guy that was supposed to be on the truck, but he was on vacation. And his name was William F. Goulet, G-U-L-L-E-T-T-E. And he would have been on that truck if he wasn't on vacation. I know. Is that suspicious? So he's on vacation and he goes on in the newspaper to say the vehicles were known to carry about $2 million at a time. And he says the robbers must have had inside information. Really? Really? That's strange. Hmm. Wonder where these robbers could have got that from. Maybe the guy on vacation. Who knows? So the postal inspectors threatened to send a thousand postal inspectors to Massachusetts to look for this heist money, right? But they ended up settling for the chief postal inspector. His name was Henry B. Montague. And he had a 99% conviction rate when it comes to crime solving the mail. And he went right up to Boston. And you know what he did? Absolutely nothing. What people don't understand about Boston, it is so cloistered. Everybody knows everybody. And a lot of times nobody talks. This famed postal inspector hit a brick wall. The gangsters were laughing at them, calling them the stamp police and all this stuff. At one point, one of the gangsters has been rumored to say, okay, hey, yeah, I've got to go to the supermarket. He says to one of his friends, do you need anything? The friend says, why don't you just have those guys that are following you go to the supermarket for you? He goes, I don't think the stamp police could find their way to the market if I gave them a map. So they just weren't afraid of these guys. I'm sorry. The U.S. postmaster even went further with the reward. They were offering the 150 G's and then the other 50 grand, which was separate from that. And they revised this reward to say, if the person suspected of this robbery is killed while they're being apprehended, they'd still pay the reward to whomever offered the information. And the people that were going to be arrested but were killed would have been deemed, in effect, to have been fully convicted. So I don't think that's ever been done before. And that just shows how desperate the FBI and the Postal Police were in this. And I think at a certain point, the FBI let the Postal Police take the lead on this because they knew it wasn't really going anywhere. And again, the FBI was fully compromised in Boston. So as the five-year statute of limitation ramps up, the Postal Police become more desperate and they do indict several individuals, and I'm going to tell you about them. So the feds end up arresting four men and one woman, and the suspects were John Red Jack Kelly, George W. Agastolius, I think that's a Greek name, Joseph Tripoli, Thomas Richards, and Patricia Dia, I know I'm going to butcher this one, Dia Ferio. D-I-A-F-E-R-I-O. So naturally, at one point, the U.S. Marshals do a search of these residents, the five people's residents, 
inside John Jack Kelly's house, they discovered $350 in cash. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but that was almost three G's, $3,000 in today's money. Bulletproof vest, a 45 caliber firearm. And what you need to know about Jack Kelly, John Jack Kelly, he was a stone gangster. He was an Irishman, obviously you can tell by the name, but he was associated directly with Raymond Patriarca. And they called Raymond Patriarca in Boston and in Rhode Island, the man. He was the godfather of the entire New England region. Everything went through him and he worked directly with Patriarca. He was a hitman for Patriarca. He did scores for Patriarca. You know, he just scores for himself, but he kicks up, right? But he was a stone gangster and he was feared. If somebody said you were in that world that Red Kelly was on your ass, you were gonna run. I don't care who you were, Winter Hill, whomever. I don't even know if Winter Hill had been commissioned by that point, but there was always enough gangsters around and he was killing plenty of them. I don't have a ton of information on the probable cause they had to arrest these people, but these guys, I don't know about the woman as much, but these guys were stone gangsters and they did scores and this was the biggest score. And guys, it's so easy. It is part of you, right? I think that's why we love heist stories. Like, geez, could I do that? This was the easiest goddamn thing in the world. And you have to figure they were tipped off from the inside. Crazy. So they're ramping up for trial against these five people. But just as they're getting ready to go to trial, don't forget, this is Boston, right? And it comes out that one of the defendants, Thomas Richards, was on the prosecution witness list. And that would indicate that he had turned state's evidence. And one of the things that the postal police, I don't think, understood, when that happens, when that hits, when that's printed out, that guy's a dead man. And that's exactly what happened. He was a workaday electrician. On the street, he was an electrician, that's for sure. But on the side, he was a criminal. He'd do breaking and enterings, alarms, and all that. So I know you're going to be shocked. You might want to sit down. As soon as that comes out that he's on their witness list, he disappears and he's never been seen again. Are you shocked? And it's rumored that Red Kelly's lawyer was concerned that he was actually being placed in hiding by the FBI. And he's having a conversation with Red Kelly. Red Kelly says, yeah, I don't think we're going to be hearing from Tommy anytime soon. So that was his way of telling his attorney that Tommy is not going to be down for breakfast. And lo and behold, after that, the case kind of fell apart, but they're stuck ready to go to trial, and they do so. And the woman who was involved with this, I think I had mentioned it at the beginning, Patricia Diafario. Well, I think I got that right. Diafario was alleged to be that person, the big bosom woman who was directing traffic off the highway while the robbery was going down. And she did, in fact, have a big bust. And what happened in court, I know it wouldn't happen today, but as the trial's going on, they have Miss Dia Ferio stand up, stand to the side, and ask one of the witnesses, is this the big bosom woman you witnessed directing traffic? And he couldn't really make a solid ID. And he is believed to have said, I may have underestimated the bus size. So 
totally sexist. It wouldn't happen today, but kind of funny. I don't know what the actual evidence was against this crew, but they were all ultimately acquitted. So they can never be tried again. So was this the right crew or did the federal government just try to round up some robbers and put somebody in prison for this robbery that made them look so utterly stupid? So yeah, it seems like they were on the correct path. There was a book, it was called My Life in the Mafia, and it was by Vinny Teresa, Fat Vinny, and he's one of the first people to have flipped on the mafia. And he was a made member of the mafia out of Rhode Island. But I believe he worked in Boston. They call him a lieutenant. I don't know what that is really. But he was a gangster and he said that he had heard from good sources that Red Kelly was the robber and the rest of the crew was there as well. But there were other people involved. He said Red Kelly got 80 cents on the dollar from Raymond Patriarca to launder the money, which is an astronomical sum. It's been said that when gangsters do that, they go about 60% in their favor. The robber will get 40. But Red Kelly was so close to Patriarca, and I believe this money was easy to move because it was low denominations. I don't think these were $100 bills or anything like that. I think it was small amounts whenever you go to the post office. Remember, this was the day before everybody used debit cards and credit cards. It was all cash, really. So I kind of wonder, why would you need to launder it at all? Or was it just part of kicking up to Patriarch, or I don't know. Red Kelly would continue his life a crime. And I believe in the 90s, he ended up going in the witness protection program. And I think he was involved in testifying against Raymond Patriarch, believe it or not on a homicide case. So it's crazy that a guy like him would flip, but he did. He must have had a come to Jesus moment that a life in crime with Patriarcha ends one of two ways, the federal pen or in the back of somebody's trunk. And I believe that's what would have happened to him. He had done so much crime, so many murders for the crime family that he had to go if they could ever get their hands on him. But he beat them to the punch testified against Patriarch, and I believe Patriarch did 10 years in jail over it. Some of the things I'd like to know is, you know, why do you have to launder bills with such low denomination? You could just go spend it at Stop and Shop, right? It's untraceable, really. And I guess there was some mail receipts and all this other stuff. They obviously burned all that stuff. But another thing I'd like to know is, what happened to the woman in this case? You don't really have a lot of women involved in these high-level scores like this. But if you think about it, it's kind of a stroke of genius where this woman is directing people off the road like there's an accident up ahead. I think they're more apt to listen to a woman, especially a beautiful woman, and take the exit and not keep going. And she did her job. I'd love to know what she got paid for that. What do you think? 50 grand, 60 grand? A lot of money in those days. Retirement money, really. It's also been said, guys, that the Anjulos, the capo regime of the New England Mafia situated on Prince Street in the North End, had something to do with that. I certainly would agree with that because Jerry Anjulo had his nose and everything and so did his brother. 
but I'm not exactly sure. It was said later on that Red Kelly, Red Kelly was a tough guy. There's no doubt about it. He'd go around these haunts in Boston and saying, yeah, I did it because he was challenging the mob to do something to him. You know what I mean? Because he worked directly for the man, Patriarca, and he just wouldn't do it. And I guess the local organized crime crew at one point was caught on tape saying, don't say anything to Red Kelly about the robbery because he's looking to challenge us on it. We just don't want to be challenged on it. He works for Raymond, you know? So that was rumor, but I kind of believe Fat Vinny's book, right, where he says Red Kelly did it with that crew, and they got away with it, you know? There's other things in Teresa's book that proved to be true. Why would he lie about that? He's not going down for it. It's just one of those things you hear. He's in the business, you know? It's like you hear you're in the electrical industry. Oh, there's uh, switches that are on sale down at Joe's Electrical Outlet. Well, Fat Vinny picks up tidbits here and there and puts it together, and now it's in his book. I kind of buy it, but who really knows? It's a great mystery. I'm surprised a movie has been made about this case. And if anybody in the Boston Confidential audience has connections in Hollywood, I'll tell you right now, I'd certainly be willing to be an actor in that movie. <laughs> All right. So, guys, I'm going to leave you there. That's the Great Plymouth Mail Truck Robbery. If you're looking to get a hold of me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'll see you on the flip side, guys. 